Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets. What's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. And it's my pleasure today to welcome back to the show an old favourite, John Rubino. If you don't know John, he's um, a writer. He's written three excellent books. Uh, first, oh, actually, I beg your pardon, I think he's written four books. But uh, the three that I'm going to mention are How to Profit from the Coming Real Estate Bust, which he wrote in 2003. Uh, and lo and behold, a couple of years later, we got a real estate bust. Um, he also wrote with James Turk, The Coming Collapse of the and how to profit from it, subtext by gold, and that was pretty much the trade of the noughties. And he's also mo- most recently the author of Clean Money, Picking Winners in the Green Tech Boom, which was published last year. He has a, a finance MBA from New York University. He spent the 1980s on Wall Street as a euro-dollar trader, an equity analyst, and a junk bond analyst. And he now... Uh, writes, he invests his money and he uh, looks after the websites dollarcollapse.com and greenstockinvesting.com John, that was a long introduction but we got there in the end, welcome back to the show, how are you doing? I'm doing great Dominic, how about you? I'm very well thanks, I'm very well Now, we were talking earlier today about um, the US bond the 30 year bond And um, I showed you a couple of charts that I'd drawn up, which I'm going to post uh, on the homepage of the show. And the first one is a long term chart of the US bond since 1980. And it's been very well behaved. It's 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 there's a clear channel there and it's risen to the top end of the channel uh, and then gone back to the bottom end of the channel where you'd buy. And then it's risen to the top end of the channel where you'd sell. And it's now sitting at the lower end of the channel, which would normally mean this is a buy point. But it has also, in the last year or so, probably near two years actually, traced out a large head and shoulders pattern. Now, for those of you that that aren't... Uh, stock analysts, a head and shoulders pattern is a reversal pattern that you would normally find at the end of a bull market or you'd find an inverted head and shoulders pattern at the end of a bear market. Now, if this head and shoulders pattern, if my reading of the chart is correct, and we have a reversal uh, in the bond, and which would also mean rising interest rates, I mean, well, firstly, John, let, let's discuss. Do you think the the long term bond is is looking like it's about to reverse? That the that the bull market is over. This thirty year bull market is over. Well, I think the uh, the bull market in sovereign debt, especially um, U.S. long term treasuries, has been epic. You know, this has been uh, a really amazing run from the uh, what sixteen seventeen percent interest rates of the early nineteen eighties. To, uh, to rates that are just shockingly low right now. And, and just mathematically, it can't go on much further, but there are a lot of fundamental reasons why um, we're at the end of the road here. And obviously, we're, we're taking on immense amounts of debt in the U.S. and uh, really around the world. But uh, 
even more than that, the, the money that we've pumped out in the last couple of years to try to avert, uh, you know, collapse into a 1930s-style depression is starting to have an effect out there. You know, junk bonds are soaring, and um, emerging country bond spreads are narrowing dramatically, which means that, uh, that there's a lot of money chasing risk out there now. And that will manifest itself in rising inflation if it continues, which will make um, long-term bonds yielding, you know, 4.5% or whatever, a horrendous deal. You know, if, if inflation starts to tick up into the 3 4 5% range, which it could easily with all the money that we've printed in the last couple of years, then the last place you want to be is locked into a 30-year bond that's only going to pay you 4 or 5% going forward because you're going to see the, the currency in which that bond is denominated go down in value, which means the the payments that that bond is going to give you over time are less and less valuable, which means the bond is a lot less valuable. So uh, I, I think there's a good chance that the, uh, the Treasury bubble bursts at some point in the near future, U.S. interest rates start to go up dramatically, and that changes everything because we're, we're still around the world so dependent on um, variable rate debt that when rates start to go up, the, uh, the financial system will, uh, will really suffer. You know, mortgages will be harder and harder to get, and, uh, and the people with variable rate mortgages out there will see their payments shoot up, and they'll either lose their houses or, uh, or won't be able to spend money in the, you know, the, the usual litany of bad effects from rising interest rates. We're going to see that pretty soon. So, yeah, long answer to your question. Sorry, but uh, I, I do think that, uh, that we're close to the end of the road in the, uh, the, the bond bull market and that what comes after that is very painful. Well, it, it was a long answer, but it was a quality answer. Now, my my <laughs> my technical reading is, I mean, the, the standard way of reading a head and shoulders is that the the distance the measurement from the neckline to the, to the top of the head, if that neckline uh, breaks, you can expect the break to the downside to be at least the size of the distance from the neckline to the top of the head. Now, the top of the head uh, was when bonds spiked uh, in late 2008, early 2009, to about just over 140. And the neckline, according to my reading, is at about 112. So that's a that's 30 points. Now, if you get 30 points to the downside, if that neckline at 112, 112.50 doesn't hold, and you get 30 points to the downside, you're looking uh, at a, a price of about 80 for the US bond, which would mean interest rates at something like 7.5 or 8%. What are the consequences of interest rates at 7.5 or 8% going to be? It, of course, it's not a given that it's going to happen. That may, that neckline may, of course, hold. But nevertheless, let's discuss uh, hypothetically seven and a half or eight percent interest rates. Okay. Well, uh, two or three immediate effects will be first on the stock market because um, stocks generally are valued in relation to the uh, the risk-free rate of return that you could get by just investing in government bonds. If that risk-free rate of return goes up then stocks become less attractive. So you could see a, uh, an end to the bull market in, in U.S. and, to a lesser extent, uh, global stocks, first of all. In, in other words, our stock market will go down here. Um, the, the effects on the economy should be pretty dramatic just because there's so much variable rate debt out there. As, as I said, you know, all the, the mortgages that are going to reset – uh, and, and many, many mortgages are going to reset in the next couple of years. They'll have to reset at higher and higher rates which um, 
since what is it half of the mortgages in the US are underwater now or some some astounding statistic like that and um, as these rates reset at higher and higher rates the people with houses that already are worth less than the mortgage are going to see themselves having to pay more and more each month and more and more of them are just going to walk away and so we'll see a renewal of um, of defaults on mortgages and banks having to take back a lot of houses and then sell them at losses and you know so we'll see a, a return to hard times in the housing market and that will reverberate through the consumer sector and so we'll see less cars be sold and, and built and auto workers be thrown out you know it just it, it'll, it'll reverberate throughout the economy cause us to slow down again probably here which will cause government to have to borrow even more, which will cause uh, more money printing, which will impact the dollar at some point. So um, higher interest rates lead to a lot of um, second and third level effects that are, are dramatically bad going forward. And, and I think that's really, that, that's the key variable to watch right now because uh, if it seems like the global economy is picking back up, and interest rates spike as a result of that, or as a result of some of the other factors, like the, the U.S. dumping um, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of Treasury bonds on the market every few months, um, then we're going to see a return to um, either the 1960s kind of, um, you know, incipient hyperinflation or a crack back down into the 1930s. And we owe so much money now, in, in the U.S. in particular, but also in, in a lot of parts of Europe and and uh, some parts of the developing world that uh, we're, we're very, very fragile and we're becoming more fragile as time goes on. So um, when something bad happens, when, when a big black swan lands next, uh, it's not clear that we have the tools to recover from it. So when interest rates spike, when the dollar tanks, when the euro tanks, whatever, there are a lot of bad things that can happen out there and, and uh, any of them can push us over the edge. Um do you, I've got several questions based on what you just said that there. I mean, firstly, the impact of this on stocks. I guess if you wanted to make a target as to how low stocks would sink in a rising rate environment, you would have to say that dividends would have to go to a level that um, compensated for the extra risk in buying stocks. Now, if, if a US government bond is is uh, paying, um, you, you know, 7.5% interest, then dividends on stocks would have to be somewhere north of, of 10%, I would have thought, which would mean, I mean, you know, some of the better dividend payers at the moment are paying around 5%. So you're looking at a halve, halving in, in stock prices. Um, yeah. It, <laughs> there are a lot of different scenarios out there, but... Um, it, it really depends on why interest rates are going up. If rates are going up because inflation is accelerating, then you could see the, the nominal value of stocks go up as well, but they'll go down in real terms, but they'll, they'll go up in dollar terms or in euro terms or, or pound terms or whatever. And so you, you can't say the stock market is going to go down because, and you, you may not want to short stocks in that circumstance because they're, they're actually going up. They're just not going up as fast as inflation. So uh, the currency is losing value faster than stocks are gaining it, but you could still see stocks go up. On the other hand, if, if rates spike for some other reason or they get out ahead of the inflation rate, then you could see the stock market just tank. And there's really, <laughs> you know, it's hard to see what the bottom is in that kind of a circumstance because uh, the, the, the global economy is still so fragile. And uh, there, there are so many people out there that are, are not 
far from losing their houses or losing their jobs or whatever that uh, that you could see us head right back down to the the 2008 lows and then pierce that and then all the you know everybody who uh, is watching that as a as a technical support level would be inclined either to sell or to sell short and then you could see another leg down so there there are all kinds of bad possibilities out there and it, it's not clear which one is going to to manifest but there are just so many ways for us to get into trouble given how much we owe right now that uh, that it's hard to be optimistic because almost anything we do leads us to take on more debt which is really the problem so in effect we're making the problem a lot worse as we go along with the inevitable result <laughs> of of this debt coming back to bite us one way or another either through a deflationary crash or um a kind of hyperinflation where we're we're just printing and printing and printing to try to keep ourselves ahead of a, a deflationary crash um, until we destroy the the paper currencies of the world. So, and and again, bonds are at the uh, at the center of all this because uh, the bond market is gigantic. Interest rates are extremely low, and so any kind of disruption could lead to a, a huge disruption in the bond market. Either scenario is bullish for gold, isn't it? Uh, yeah, most of the major scenarios are bullish for gold, yeah. The, the deflationary crash one is the, the least bullish, but even in the Depression, gold went up because gold is a form of cash, and cash becomes extremely valuable in, in a deflation because uh, you need to pay your debts back, and you need something tangible with which to pay your debt. Yeah. And so, so gold is probably going to be okay regardless, but uh, in the currency destruction scenarios where we just print and print and print to cover um, the, the debts that we're building up, then all this paper is going to migrate into hard assets and into alternative forms of money that can't be printed out in, in infinite quantities by governments. And gold and silver will benefit immensely from that process. You know, there, there, there really isn't that much of those metals out there in relation to the, the paper that exists now. So it's how, even how... A, a fraction... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, how big is the uh, is the bond market compared to the gold market? Do you know? Oh, it, well, in terms of actual numbers, I don't know, but it's immense, orders of magnitude bigger than the gold market. You know, it's trillions versus billions, basically. If we see higher rates in the U.S., I mean, we're likely to see them worldwide, aren't we? Um, you would think, and the, the U.S. is to an extent decoupling, at least from Asia right now and, and uh, Europe because our, our problems are different. So we're, we're um, accelerating and decelerating and, and going through uh, our changes at, at different rates and at different times. But yeah, if the, the U.S. is still a big enough economy and the dollar is still um, a crucial reserve currency so that uh, trouble here is trouble around the world. And if U.S. bond prices plunge because interest rates spike, then that's that's a big problem for all the trade surplus countries that have huge dollar-denominated debt balances. And if the dollar tanks, because uh, we're printing too much money, same thing. You know, they, these guys own a lot of dollars around the world, and, and everyone does business in dollars. So when, when the world's reserve currency is thrown into turmoil by mismanagement of the, that currency's government, then everybody has a problem. And it's impossible to predict how it all plays out because there are too many moving parts. But you, you know um, that virtually no one comes through it unscathed except the people who own a lot of gold and silver and oil and you know, um, other kinds of hard assets. 
As I see it, 112.50 is the line in the sand. That's the real kind of, you know, sink or swim level. What can the US government do to protect the long bond? Uh, nothing. The game's over for us here. We, we've borrowed so much money that our, our only choices are of which kind of disaster that we're going to see in the future because we can either uh, stop printing money and then basically collapse under the weight of all the debt that we've taken on, or we can print as much as it takes to keep us ahead of the, uh, you know, the impending disaster, which is kind of what we've been doing lately. The, the Fed has been buying large chunks of each new issue of Treasury bonds. So in effect, we've been printing new dollars and then paying off our debts with those new dollars. And so, so far that's worked. And it will continue to work as long as the dollar remains in demand around the world. So, um, when that changes, and it eventually has to change just because of oversupply, we're printing so many new dollars that um, at some point you hit too much. And I don't think we're that far from that point. And when that happens, then the U.S. loses the ability to monetize its debt and has to live within its means. And we, it, that's not possible for us right now, given all the obligations we've taken on. You know, we have a global military empire that costs a trillion dollars a year. We have um, a, a not quite European, but still getting there, um, cradle-to-grave welfare, welfare state that costs immense amounts of money and is building up uh, unfunded liabilities at a rate that is in the several trillion dollars a year um, range. And so unless we're willing to give up at least one and maybe both of those things, then we we're going to end up having to borrow money. And so so at some point we hit this brick wall where we can't borrow anymore. We'll, we'll be like Greece or like um, a lot of U.S. states which don't have their own printing presses where all of a sudden they have to find a way to live within their means. And it's not clear how you get from here to there because you, you have all these constituencies that aren't going to give back what they've worked so hard to, to achieve. And, and so, you know, currency crisis, social turmoil, very bad stock market. It all seems like it's out there in the future, and it uh, it all depends on interest rates and the dollar. It's a frightening scenario, but uh, <laughs> it, it 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 really does seem like we're coming to some kind of inflection point where there's been untold amounts of stress in in the modern system of money, and it's coming under more and more pressure. But somehow or other, we 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 seem to keep getting away with it. But it, it, it's, it really does seem that this time we are, we are coming to some kind of inflection point. It does. And um, there's no way to know ahead of time with what will be the straw that breaks the camel's back. But the imbalances are so huge that uh, at some point something will happen. Either interest rates will spike or one of the major currencies of the world will collapse or whatever. And it, it not only will cause a recession – it'll cause the whole concept of fiat currency to be called into question. And that's, that's going to be this gigantic sea change in, in the history of global economics. Because basically, um, in, in living memory, almost everyone um, who's alive now has only lived under fiat currencies. And so to almost everyone in the world, it seems completely normal for governments to have a printing press and to be able to print as many new pieces of currency as they need to do the things that they're elected to do. And that, that's an inevitably, inevitably a, a, a 
destructive system, but we haven't figured that out yet, or at least most people haven't figured it out yet. And so the, the process of us figuring it out is going to be extremely painful because we, we won't come to that conclusion until the currencies demonstrably don't work. In other words, till prices start going up and, and governments are, are just running the printing presses and can't figure out how to stop and, and uh, currency values collapse and bond yields go through the roof and, and you know, all, all these bad things that we've talked about will begin to happen and then we'll have a, a global conversation about why they're happening and hopefully we'll come to the right conclusion, which is that governments shouldn't have printing presses. You know, politicians shouldn't be able to control the money of a society because they'll inevitably destroy it. Well, and, um, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and uh, I actually just reread um, Murray Rothbard's What Has Government Done to Our Money uh, just last week. And, and um, what, what we're seeing in, in the UK, and I'm sure we're seeing something similar in the States, is this ever this ever bloating state the state sector is getting bigger and bigger and more and more people are doing unnecessary jobs that really don't need doing i mean we had a <laughs> we had a very uh, amusing thing happen last week where we have british airways have gone on strike and that's caused all sorts of upheaval and the uh, the, the um rnt the, the the trains threatened to go on strike as well and whenever the train drivers go on strike that that causes again huge amounts of disruption but in the same week, 200,000 civil servants, 200,000 civil servants went on strike. Nobody noticed. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good sign, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and see, what, what you're seeing there in the UK, Dominic, is what, what basically all the, the major countries of the world are going to see going forward because you, you guys are running up against limits yeah. to, to how much the government can, can print and spend because the pound it has gone down in value lately. And Absolutely. That, that, that puts a limit on the printing press. When people don't want the, the stuff you're printing anymore, then you have to limit the amount that you're printing. And so, so you're seeing um, the, the early hints of what the U.S. Uh, and uh, certainly Japan is going to see going forward. But I mean, And it, it's going to be really ugly. It, it, is, it is very ugly, but what I'm hoping will happen is that with... If there's some kind of failure uh, of currency, of modern currency, you will see uh, concurrently a failure of governments. And hopefully we can, we can almost get rid of government. Well, um, see, the, the debate that we'll have at, at the bottom, you know, when everything is, is kind of falling apart, is what kind of a society do we want going forward? And I'm afraid that the loudest voices are going to be on the other side from you, where they're saying, well, it'll, it'll be a failure of capitalism, and therefore we need a stronger, more, more pervasive government going forward. And so it'll be an interesting and, I think, very scary debate between you know, classical liberals who would rather have a limited government that does a few things very, very well, um, and other than that, free individuals pursuing their own versions of happiness in a society. And um, on the other side, the uh, people who believe that we need a, a strong state that manages most of the, the aspects of our lives to keep us from screwing up like we, we just got done screwing up. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, it's not clear who wins that argument. And well, I have to say, I, 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 history would suggest that... that 
that the other side will win. I mean, if you look at yeah. uh, what happened in Germany, uh, you know, after the the collapse of the Reichsmark in, in the early 1920s. Mm-hmm. And, and, and right now, public sentiment in the, in the UK, you know, blames the bankers. The bankers mm-hmm. are the evil ones. It's their fault. And I'm not saying that they're innocent, but, I mean, you know, it's, 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 the, it's the, the culture in which they operate. This, this is a crucial point that's going to have to be made over and over again, and that, that is that when you have a government that's printing huge amounts of new money and just sending it out into the system, somebody is going to do crazy stuff with that money. And it's usually the bankers because the bankers get the money first. Yeah. And if, you know, if you're a banker and the government's handing out huge amounts of, of money at extremely low interest rates, you either have to do something with that money or your competitors will do it and... Uh, and outcompete you, or you'll be fired and replaced by somebody who's willing to, to do that. So you end up lending money to basically anybody because you've got this money that you've got to get rid of. You know, you've got to put it to work. And so it comes back to the printing press. When the printing press is running flat out, you get financial speculation and um, malinvestment and bad loans and, and uh, that, that eventually lead to a crash. And right now, by the way, we're, we're seeing that again. Junk bonds are booming, emerging market debt is booming, and, and uh, emerging, market, uh, er, emerging country stock markets, they're, they're all booming. So, so the hot money, which is being fed by government printing presses, is out there doing stuff like that again. And uh, this time it looks like it's hedge funds doing it. But um, it's always going to be somebody. And so the, the real problem is the printing press, not the people who do stupid things with the money. They're just a symptom of the, the deeper problem. Let's um, just change the subject, John. I mean, we're, we're coming to a close now, but I want to just ask you about a couple of other subjects. Firstly, the the big story of, of the week has been the, the whistleblower on the London, London um, bullion exchanges. You're good friends with some of the guys from Gatter. I know you've written a book with James Turk, who is a, a firm believer that there is some kind of conspiracy to suppress the gold price. What is your view? On that subject, oh, this, this was a this was a great week for Gata and and James Turk and the, and the other guys who have been doing research for I mean, literally a decade or more in into the subject of central bank manipulation of the gold market. And uh, their, their take all along has been that uh, sure, it's 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 being done. It's being done for a, a very clear reason to depress the price of gold because gold is a, a competing currency and when gold is down, it makes the dollar and the euro and the yen look strong by comparison, and it makes the central bankers look like they're doing a good job. So it's, their, it's in their interest to depress the price of gold. And the, the guys at GATA and James Turk and some others have meticulously researched how they're doing it, and they've, they've published what looks like um, incontrovertible proof that they're doing it. But basically, they've done this in a vacuum. Nobody's been listening to them. Nobody cared because... Um, the, the basic argument against them was that, well, this is a gigantic fraud if what you're saying is true, and there's no way that this could be done and, and nobody know about it. You know, there would be whistleblowers coming out of the woodwork and, and, and people telling the press about it and everything that nobody had until this last week. Finally, somebody came out who was in that market and explained how it was done. There was a, a, a London-based, I believe, um, derivatives trader. Yeah. Who, uh, yeah, who... who uh, wrote to the U.S. regulators saying, all right, we're going to have a, a, 
a silver event here pretty soon. The silver is going to be manipulated in the following way. It's going to do this on this day. And it happened exactly the way the guy said it would. And so, so um, now he's going around telling people how it works and doing interviews. And, um, and his, he, he got, um, his car got hit in a hit-and-run accident the other day. <laughs> Something like, it's like out of a spy novel. And uh, so it looks like the cat is out of the bag. And so the question now becomes, uh, can the mainstream media and the regulators of the world continue to ignore this story, or um, does it break in some way? And, and one way I think that it could break is that enough people see this um, and, and, and are worried by it that uh, they go to the, the commodities future exchanges and demand delivery. In other words, if they have a gold or silver futures contract, instead of just taking cash for it or selling it before it, it expires, they, they say, all right, I want this much gold bullion in return for my contract. And apparently, uh, there, there isn't anything like enough bullion out there to satisfy all the futures contracts that, uh, that have been created. And when that happens, that either sends the price of gold through the roof as the exchanges try to get it wherever they can at whatever price, or it causes the exchanges to default. Either way, um, that is a, a earthquake in the uh, precious metals market, and it'll send both gold and silver through the roof just because people will realize that the paper market has been being used to manipulate the physical price for all these years, and that the physical price should be a lot higher if it just um, if it has to equate to the amount of paper money that's been created. And so when that happens, all bets are off. Gold and silver go through the roof. And, uh, you know, it's impossible to say whether it happens this week or five years from now. But this last week, the events of this last week, brought us a couple of big steps closer to the eventual short squeeze in the, the metals market. I uh, can remember back in 2003, there was a – we have a program in the U.K. called The Money Program, which is a BBC program. Uh, about money, <laughs> as you can surmise, because it's called the Money Programme. But uh, they did a big expose. And remember, this is, you know, BBC mainstream television. It's not, you know, some bloke on a couple of internet sites. They did a big expose on the fraud, fraudulent practices that were taking place with what are called self-cert mortgages, self-certification mortgages, which was... Uh, our equivalent of your liar loans. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds like that. It was it, exactly the same thing, just different words. And this was on mainstream television, and there was a big hoo-ha about it for a couple of weeks, and everyone got all excited, and suddenly, you know, financial advisors, where everyone was being all conservative and sensible, and the furore died down, apart from a few Cassandras on the sidelines, and the practice continued for another five years. And it really wouldn't surprise me if the same thing happens in in the gold markets, if indeed they are the the the, the metals are sup suppressed at all. I, I gather from what you've said, you think they are, but you know I, I think this will just be another case of a bit of noise and then back to normal. Um, yeah, it, that's completely possible because it's um, it's such bad news for the, the central banks of the world and the, the big commercial and investment banks that you can bet they will do anything that they can do to keep it from happening. So um, so I don't know. I don't know what the timing of all this is. And uh, 
But, but I do think there's a chance that enough people are going to demand delivery from the commodities exchanges that uh, that we, we could see something interesting happen in the short rather than the long run. But, but yeah, <laughs> there's no way to know when it happens. Looking at it from the other way, you know, if, if you get some kind of panic in the world of fiat currency and people actually start wanting their gold and silver in their hand to buy stuff with, that's when the whole thing unravels. That is, yeah. And at the, at the rate that we're creating new paper currency, that is out there somewhere. It's going to happen. We will hit a tipping point, and, uh, and, and we'll have this almost instantaneous revaluation of um, precious metals in relation to paper. But, but yeah, the, the forces on the other side of that equation are so powerful that there really is no way to know when it happens. Uh, John, going back to our subject of the bond and, and you know, the, the big line in the sand at one twelve fifty, I bet you, the when we talk about when it happens, I bet what pushes the uh, the bond over the edge, so to speak, is the passing of the health care bill. Well, that's, that's definitely a negative from a financial standpoint in the U.S. because uh, I don't think anybody really believes that it's going to lower the deficit. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's generally understood, even by people who... How, how, how can you who, stand up and say that kind of stuff and keep a straight face? I have no idea. I would just I, start I, sweating. I mean, yeah, I know. <laughs> but um, U.S. politicians have a, a long history of getting away with stuff like that. So I, I think that, uh, and, and, you know, this is another case of it. I mean, they, were, they were able to stand up and, and um, say that a multi-trillion dollar um, entitlement is going to lower the deficit. And the, the bill passed. And uh, there's no rioting in between. You know, because a lot of people think that um, um, government-run health care is a good thing. And I, I, I don't disagree that everybody should have health care. But my focus is more on the financial side of it. And, and since we're bankrupt already, adding new entitlements is kind of missing the point of what's going on because it's, it's, it's like renovating your kitchen while your house is on fire. You know, no, such a bigger thing problem. Is, no such thing as free health care. No, no. And if you're already broke, you, you can't take on new obligations and expect to be able to, to cover them. So, you know, we basically, we're fighting two wars in the U.S., and we're taking on, you know, massive new entitlements, and we're already broke to begin with. So at, at some point, it all falls apart, and then we won't be able to, to uh, invade any country we want to and keep soldiers in a hundred different uh, military bases around the world, and we won't be able to cover everyone's health care and everyone's retirement. We just won't have the money for that. So we're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to make hard choices at some point, or the marketplace will make them for us. And so, yeah, you, to get back to your question, yeah, you're right. It, it could be that uh, the passage of health care is the final straw. And, and we, we will start looking at government spending and unfunded liabilities through that lens. And what we're going to see is so ugly that it terrifies us and, and, and causes the, the dollars to start falling and interest rates to start going up. But, um, again, I don't know. I, I wish the timing was easier to predict because <laughs> it seems like all of this stuff is just it's, it's out there waiting to happen. But things don't happen as, as quickly as you wish they would, you know. I'd like to, frankly, just get this over with so we can have the interesting debate that you and I talked about, about what kind of a society we're going to have going forward. You know, this one clearly didn't work. <laughs> and so we, know, we need to build a better one, but this one has to fall apart first. Yeah. Well, that, that'll be a debate by riot. The, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
the uh, the um the, the thing about the healthcare bill is he's trying to expand a, a system that's not very good anyway. I mean, our NHS, our National Health Service over here, you know, it has many qualities, but ultimately it is one, it is, it is, I think it's the biggest, if it were a corporation, it would be the biggest corporation in Europe, and it is just woefully inefficient. And it, it's it's full to the brim with unnecessary administrators, and the cost of everything is, is astronomical, and there's just so many stupid things that take place within it. And and I don't know what it is, but something better has to exist. And and I dare say it's something not run by the state. But uh, anyway, that's just my take. But anyway, let's let's move on from that. Um, and uh, to, to finish off the interview, let's just recap. When I spoke to you a few months ago, you just published your book, um, Clean Money, Green Tech. In fact, it was more than a few months ago. It was probably about nine or ten months ago, maybe even a year ago. And your book, uh, Clean Money, opens with the line, welcome to the next great bull market. And you predict um, a, a great bull market in all these alternative technologies. Now, green tech, some sectors have done very well over the last 12 months, but others have been laggards. Um, should we have a quick dis- dis- discussion about that? Sure. Um, w- within the, the umbrella of green tech or clean tech, there, there are you know 15 different industries maybe. And... Um, most of them have basically been caught up in the recession like like most any other industry, and they, they haven't done all that well. Or they've been a victim of their own past success, like solar um, had a huge run in, the, in, in 2007 or so when um, solar stocks went through the roof, and basically any company making solar panels was able to get financing to build new factories. They all did. And so we, we now have a massive glut of photovoltaic capacity out there and prices are plunging which is making it hard for most solar companies to turn a decent profit and that that doesn't mean solar energy isn't going to be huge because it it absolutely is you know it gets cheaper every year and and um, closer and closer to competitiveness with traditional fossil fuels and uh, the day is coming when solar on your rooftop uh, at least in a sunny place like Arizona or, or parts of Spain um, it is just as cheap as electricity sent in from the local utility. And then everybody's going to build houses with um, solar panels built in, and they'll put solar panels on existing structures. And, and the industry will, will embark on a new growth phase that's going to be just astounding, and it's going to last for 20 years. But the question is, when does it start? And um, that, it's not clear yet because the glut is, if anything, still growing right now. So it, it might take another year or two to work off the glut and get back into balance. But when it comes, solar will be huge again. So we, we want to learn about solar in the meantime and, and um, choose our target companies and start looking for entry points. And uh, Smart Grid, on the other hand, is something that's here and now, works, and is growing dramatically because it's basically information technology. You know, we know how to manage large information flows. And, and uh, companies are, are applying that to the electric utility business. And so companies like Itron and Internoc and a few others, um, American Superconductor, are, are growing dramatically, and, uh, and, and their stock prices are reflecting that. So they're, they're basically the, the most successful niche in clean tech right now. And water is very big, too, because uh, I think generally people are starting to recognize around the world that, uh, that, that there isn't enough water to do what we've been doing in the past in the future. We're, uh, 
we're draining rivers and lakes and aquifers, and uh, at the same time that we're having a lot of new babies, the populations are going up, and, and these two trends are going to collide at some point and create a gigantic market for water technology. And that's coming too. You know, we're, we're at the early stages of that when, it, when it's, it's beginning to happen, and it, it's only going to get bigger as time goes on. So there, there are some niches within clean tech that are just going to be massive. And, uh, and it comes down in, in a difficult economy like this, it comes down to entry points. You know, at, at, at what point is the, top, is the stock cheap enough that, um, that you're willing to risk some kind of a macro disruption that, uh, that hurts your company and your stock uh, in order to get in. And, uh, you know, we're, we're uh, the fact that I'm kind of bearish on the, the stock markets of the world overall makes it hard to be excited about clean tech stocks right now, but uh, the, their time will come. And it, it may not be that distant in the future when they do come. So uh, I think right now is a good time to learn about these stocks and to get more and more familiar with the technologies and then uh, be ready to jump in when, when the markets in general seem like they're bottoming out. I couldn't agree more. John, we've spoken for longer than I intended, probably longer than you intended. I know you're trying to move house today. So <laughs> thank you very much for your time. Um, your websites are... Uh, dollarcollapse.com and greenstockinvesting.com you keep blogs on both as well as um, links to all the most exciting articles uh, on green stocks and on the financial crisis Um, it's been a real pleasure having you on come again soon John Rubino thank you very much thanks Dominic Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 